0: So there's a lot of frameworks out there right now. It's all about frameworks or libraries, but mostly frameworks. So when I build something right now, I typically use the Phoenix web framework. And maybe I use the Tailwind CSS and arguably that's a CSS framework. And maybe I decide to do some of the fancy JavaScript interactions with something like alpine.js, that's so slim, it might not even be a framework. But if it is, it's a JavaScript frontend framework. And when I did Python, I used Django, which was, or which is a, a web, like backend web framework. And I think before then, I was typically not using frameworks that much. I was using jQuery and I was using CMSs mostly.
1: What's the difference between a Do you use frameworks? I use frameworks. I was trying to duck that question by asking another, by asking a question like what's the difference between a CMS and a framework in your opinion?
0: Uh well, CMSs they uh, so that expands to content management systems. Yep. So I imagine the big difference is that they manage content
1: while frameworks
0: Yeah, those work frames. Yes, sorry. uh,
1: (laughs) Exactly. Grammar, you know. (laughs) Not my strongest suit.
0: No, but I guess the difference between a CMS and a framework, uh, it can be a bit floaty. I mean, a lot of people use WordPress as a sort of web development framework. Yep. Because there's
1: certainly a web development framework in there. I'm not sure. (laughs) You worked with WordPress after me. So you might know this better than me.
0: But it does stuff like templating and routing and all of that stuff.
1: Connecting to a database and everything a growing boy needs.
0: And half of it's sort of vanilla PHP and half of it's WordPress-specific. So the framework isn't like... It's not built on top of Laravel or Symfony. It is still... If you scraped off the cms the framework would still be wordpress
1: (laughs) ah that's a very good point
0: yeah uh and i like drupal is similar it has its own idea of how to build web applications yeah and it centers around how it works with content
1: yeah it has the node type and stuff around that right
0: yeah that was drupal 6 uh so with drupal 7 they they expanded on that and sort of went away from the one table to hold them all, <laughs> and, and now they're at Drupal nine, and I have not touched Drupal eight, so cool. I don't know. Yeah. I, thankfully, I do not know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Drupal! It was a it was a good ride in some ways, but it's such a weird, weird thing. I'm pretty sure it's a evolutionary uh, dead end, but maybe they'll prove me wrong.
1: Well, even evolutionary dead-ends can do some uh, pivot, pivot, pivoting, hmm. Pivoting, yes, exactly, and uh, end up an evolutionary winner, or I don't know.
0: I think uh, Drupal has the potential still to be the sort of CMS of the enterprise.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it's uh, It's a weird one, and it definitely had some properties that I haven't seen in basically anything else it had modules for uh for sort of building database uh queries as views and yeah it's a wild thing but i didn't it wasn't necessarily
1: sound indeed (laughs) it reminds me of the django admin system
0: yeah, except I think the Django admin system is fairly reasonable.
1: It is. It's, it's <laughs> I'm always struck by how reasonable it is. Because they could have gone really crazy with it. I do appreciate me a, a Django framework. It's one of my favorite frameworks. Because if I want to do something in, with it, I can generally Google Django and the thing I want to do and someone else has already done it and uh, described what they did.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty nice <laughs> nice feature. It's well used.
1: Yeah, it saves so much time. Yeah. Uh and by now it's a huge framework, so uh just uh walking through the documentation or uh, the source code isn't it's not really feasible anymore. <laughs> You need to know what you're looking for. You can't just uh, spelunk uh, through the code base.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's the case. Uh, I think one of my challenges when I did work with Django was that, like, when you're on the happy path, it's very, very productive. Yep. And sometimes you fall into very, very deep holes trying to make a form work.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's. If forms are inherently a hard problem or if the Django uh, abstractions regarding forms, the whole models, forms, model forms, templates, all that, if they have cut the problem in the mm, weird places.
0: Uh, sort of uh, whether they've sliced it in the correct, into the correct abstractions. Yeah. I think they're pretty damn close. Uh I think all current web frameworks sort of have this capacity to turn whatever they consider a model into whatever they consider a form. <laughs> yeah. um, I know that Phoenix in elixirland um does something very similar with schemas and change sets. I think they have they don't actually have any. A particular abstraction for forms but rather they have change sets and then they have sort of how the templating handles change sets
1: Huh,
0: interesting yeah they they that's probably the most novel approach i've seen to that problem i bet rails is pretty close to what uh, django is doing and i would expect laravel to be similar yeah but i i think for example one of the Uh, sharp edges of django is definitely form sets so when you have a form that should contain a list of entities that are in themselves sort of models and sub forms
1: yeah i did that just a couple of weeks ago it was hairy (laughs) not for for when i figured out how to implement it all it was kind of nice the code was nice i could work around the the Parts I wanted to work around, but for the user, it was much harder to use than I expected it to. Uh, maybe it's inherent to the problem, <laughs> because if you want to, say, schedule something five times, it's much harder than to schedule it one time, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it isn't.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right in that... Um sort of the problem is in intrinsically complex. So it might seem weird to say, like, no, web forms are so complicated. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're so complicated. Like, they don't seem that complicated, but because they are sort of stringly typed,
1: yeah. huh.
0: everything's a string, and uh, the way that they work, uh, sort of hierarchy as the data structure and the hierarchy of the data structure is sort of an afterthought yeah uh, it was not part of the original design so everything does get a fair bit more complicated than you'd expect and i think when it comes to handling these types of things that's where where things are just straight up easier with javascript and they're still a little bit annoying i like, Adding and removing things that belong to another thing is always a little bit finicky. Yep. Like should you have an add <laughs> an add command and a remove command, or should you have should you just pass in the entire collection, or should you be passing IDs, or what should you be doing?
1: And there are different trade-offs in different scenarios. Yeah. If you, for instance, want to have a list of say times and you want to remove the one in the middle. Yeah. Uh, what's the how do you say that to the back end
0: yeah or ordering no one likes order and (laughs) like weights and moving things around but a system such as django's obviously has to have sort of a capacity to to deal with that or you're gonna run into the sharp edge of them not having an approach to that so either it gets complicated because they want to handle all the cases or it gets um, or it stays too simple to be useful for all the cases so i think this gets in, into the more general uh the more general trade-offs with frameworks in themselves like what kind of frameworks do you avoid hmm. all right. that you have encountered
1: that I've encountered, yeah. Those I haven't encountered, I in- avoid. But of those I have encountered, or hmm, that wasn't a really fun joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the frameworks, I really don't see the meaning with other the micro frameworks because. But they're really small. They are really small, and I can read through all the source code in an afternoon. But one of them really nice upsides with having a huge framework like Django for instance uh, is that there's lots of curated functionality in it so someone has really thought does, or well best case, someone has really thought about if a certain feature fits into the framework yeah uh, but with a, a micro framework, let's say Flask I have encountered that recently. Flask is amazing for really small things. Uh, I think it has... It hasn't yet, but it will soon be superseded by FastAPI because FastAPI seems much cooler.
0: Yeah, it says fast.
1: Yeah, it does. And I have... have, uh, Everything with types must be good, right? And FastAPI has types. You can define your endpoints using types and it does validation and stuff. It's really neat. Uh, FastAPI is also a micro framework. So, well, uh, they are very useful if you want to build something small. But the size of that thing you want to build needs to be so small that you can just rip it out and put it in a Django app uh, when it grows too big. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because if I want to, let's say, I want to build a microservice that, what's a good microservice? It it can tell me which tea to drink based on um, just a list of teas that I can add to it. And I add the T's in a text file, so no web, uh, no admin web uh, interface. Uh, so that's a good start. And then I just go to the endpoint and it gives me a T. If I reload the page, I get another T. Very good. Let's say then that I want to be able to add T's through a an admin interface. That's not too horrible. Uh, the simplest version would be to just put all the T's in a text area, uh, delimit them by a new line, and be done with it. But then maybe you get, get to know that URL and go into it and add some coffee. Yeah. And that won't do. So then I need a pass user and password. And the simplest way to handle that is, I think, to use HTTP access, HTTP auth, what's the name of it?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's uh, basic auth, I think, HTTP basic auth, or something like Uh,
1: that. And that's a whole another can of worms, but we could do that until maybe, say, I and someone more wants to share this, and we want to have... Our own users and maybe we want to add or remove users and at about that time we should I should really uh, move this application to Django yeah because the admin interface of Django is just amazing
0: yeah and I've I've used flask uh, both in in happy times and in anger um, <laughs> and yeah. I maintained some some Floss code and it was it was fine for APIs which was what we were using it for yeah Um, I think I would have still built slightly more approachable and manageable APIs if I had used uh, so Django REST framework to the library would have probably given us slightly nicer APIs just yeah just sort of automated documentation and that sort of thing.
1: That's a really sweet feature. Yeah. Overall
0: it wouldn't have mattered that much and Flask was fine. Yeah. But I that's sort of where I see the sweet spot of Flask. We didn't have we didn't have so much of a deep data store. It was fairly simple uh, create, read, update, delete sort of use cases and ev- everything was fairly simple in those flask apps and that made it work but i also seen it also hits some interesting corners where where it's just like the defaults are very very sparse there's no actual database stuff included with flask so you add that on top and then you have to configure it correctly otherwise it will start shooting you in the foot yep and It's like we would have saved some pain by just using Django probably. And we wouldn't have put like left much performance on the table or anything because we wouldn't have been using most of Django. Uh, It's like a, a little bit of overhead in what's loaded into memory, I guess. Yeah. It wouldn't have been that bad. When I've been working with Elixir, I will definitely say that I've experimented with doing things without the Phoenix Web Framework because plug... That Phoenix is built up on top of is a nice HTTP HTTP framework in itself uh, or library uh, that make makes sitting on top of a connection sort of nicer requests and responses. I've also built with raw the raw cowboy web server, huh? uh, which was manageable, but at a certain point I threw. That code out and brought in Phoenix and then just copied all my business logic into that because there are so many conveniences to Phoenix and I don't feel like there's any particular overhead. I find uh, Django brings in a lot of opinions. Yep. So it expects you to store data in a certain way. It sort of expects that you're working with a database. It has all, all the functionality for uh, doing things entirely without a database sort of you could make a function-based view or a class-based view that that is just about maybe reading data from a file or or calling out to another api or something but the core of how how django does things and all of its cool features are quite closely connected to database models
1: yeah, I think that's reasonable. Yeah it, yeah. it is
0: and it it covers I think the 80% use case extremely yeah. well or even the 90%. Oh, yes. For Phoenix I found that and part of this I think is is due to being sort of functional programming and just the the way Elixir works where if I have built a module which just does some some of my business logicy stuff, I can generally move that between projects <laughs> nice. in itself because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily need a lot of other stuff it doesn't tie into things too deeply um I found that that very satisfying, and in that way, I also find like whenever I build something with Phoenix. I prob or whenever I build something with Elixir, I usually build it as a Phoenix project because if it ever risks having a web component, I want the boilerplate in place um, and that gives me things like um channels, which is sort of distributed uh, powered up web sockets uh and easy access to fancy stuff like live view if I want it. And it includes the database layer as well. So if I want a database layer, Ecto is in there. So it does basically all of the stuff that something like Django does, but it's in separate parts. I think that's sort of the Rails model as well. I believe Rails has has the sort of deep integration approach that Django does, but it uses separate libraries to achieve it. Yeah they do so active Record is probably the django orm equivalent
1: yeah it's hm that's interesting so you have the same uh you <laughs> walk the same path when it comes to uh elixir that i do with python you you pick the fat monolith library uh, and be happy with it
0: yeah, when it comes to <laughs> to monoliths, uh, I think Elixir can push the idea of a monolith quite far, uh, yeah. a lot further than you'd want to push most other frameworks when it comes to building monolithically, simply because it can do some things that you probably shouldn't be doing in other <laughs> in other <laughs> runtimes uh, due to being built on top of Erlang. Uh, sort of
1: are you are you thinking about web sockets and things like that
0: yeah for one thing running a ton of web sockets but also scheduling background work uh, when you're dealing with something like python uh, or yeah. you usually use celery i believe it's called
1: yes with a c yeah.
0: right um, yeah like the vegetable
1: do uh, they spell it like that yeah huh.
0: not in swedish though indeed um, and then we have, in Rails, you, you would use Sidekick. Uh, and yeah. both of these, as far as I'm aware, run sort of either on Cron or they listen to something like a Redis for handing off work, picking it up, processing, handing it handing the results back. Uh, so it's a separate worker process, generally speaking, uh, because you want to avoid uh, running it inside your uh, Python or Ruby application because they can't do multiple things at the same time. Exactly. While uh, the equivalent library uh, in Elixir land is called Oban, and it can run, it runs its workers inside your application because why not? (laughs) Because it's cheap, because it's concurrent.
1: Because that's how you do it in Beam land.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it, for like queuing and making sure it doesn't double enqueue things and generally being extra performant and uh, clever it just uses postgres features so it it uses constraints and stuff to avoid duplicating uh work that isn't allowed to be duplicated oh um and yeah it, it has a lot of interesting features that are sort of uh, sort of unique in running inside the beam, combined with using Postgres for a bunch of cool stuff.
1: So does it need a working Postgres to function properly? Uh,
0: Yes, that one is built on top of Postgres. Okay. But if you just want to fire off a piece of background work, I mean, that's a part of the Elixir standard library. You just spawn a task. Yeah. (laughs) Or you could even go lower and just spawn a process, which is the Erlang primitive for concurrency. I'll just go run this function. Nice. And that's concurrent. Uh,
1: speaking of Postgres, I, I, it came to mind a framework I used a long time ago, probably several years ago. Uh, it's called PostGrest or PostGrest. So it's a REST framework on top of Postgres. So you do all your programming in either if you want to uh, the PGPSQL PGPS, yeah. language. Or you can use any other language that can run on uh, Postgres, like Python, Perl, well, anything really.
0: Oh, right. They have tons of extension languages, right?
1: Yeah. It's sweet. Um, so the idea there is that you define all your data uh, that you want to save and do stuff with uh, in your database. In different tables, and when you're happy with that, you define views in another schema, and then you let only let the Postgres framework access the other schema, uh, the one the one accessed from uh, uh, the internet, and you can do lots of different fun things with this. Uh, the most fun thing, of course, is that everything is very tightly coupled to the database. That's also the least fun thing, because... Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you, If you want to do something computationally heavy, maybe you want to put that on another machine. And you can't do that uh, here. But for, I think for small to medium sites, yeah. uh, this is a very interesting idea. Yeah, I've heard people
0: uh, recommend it and uh, vouch for it, and I've also heard some people say, "Ah, that did not turn out good for us." Uh, so I yeah. think it's is one of those. Your mileage may vary, but
1: yeah, I definitely think so.
0: But I think it's an interesting idea. It's rather than a micro framework, it's a very thin framework on top of like it's a web framework very tightly on top of Postgres. And yeah. you could build on a much worse foundation than that.
1: Totally. Uh, so I used it to run, uh, to be the IT part or the the system for handling speaker lists uh, on meetings, uh, and it almost worked. <laughs> almost. <laughs> but yeah, that was probably my fault. So <laughs> no shade on Postgres.
0: Uh, I know there's also a framework for from doing GraphQL on top of Postgres in this, a very similar vein.
1: Yeah. I think there are at least three by now. <laughs>
0: yeah, probably.
1: Uh, one in JavaScript, one in Haskell, and one in, I don't know.
0: Yeah, so you're in Haskell land. Yep. Tell me about the web framework story for Haskell. Because I feel like there's something there.
1: Yeah, this is very interesting because in Haskell land or when I'm working in Haskell I don't go the FAT framework route
0: Is there a FAT framework for Haskell?
1: There is It's I will totally but- butcher this name because I've never heard it said uh, Yesod Okay So uh, Y-E-S-O-D uh, And it contains everything in the kitchen sink Uh if I recall correctly, but I don't know if it's something that I didn't like the templating or something else like that, but uh, I never used that one. Instead I've used Scotty which is a very uh, very small web server, Uh, small in uh, code size that is, Uh, and uh, uh, together with, I wonder what we chose finally, SQLite simple or something, Uh, and uh, there's a templating library which I completely have forgotten the name of Uh, it's by Chris Dunn, so it's Googleable and it's quite nice (laughs) it's not a templating library you write your uh, HTML in Haskell, in a DSL, uh, so domain specific language, embedded domain specific language even, and it Spits out HTML uh, at the right places, uh, and that's kind of nice. I'm I've got a beef with templating languages. They are just yeah. Urgh. Yeah, it's <laughs> and I am also hard to verbalize the beef. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's tricky. I I'm mostly fine with the Elixir templating language. I find the sort of the markers for starting. Uh, for breaking into and out of elixir a little bit too verbose (laughs) Um, Uh, what are they so it's uh, less than percentage equals to start wow and the equals indicates that you are going to include that there is output to be expected okay and then at the end of your elixir code it's percentage greater than so it's sort of just an HTML tag, but it it keeps me running all over the keyboard, and I guess I have bad precision yeah. at hitting percentage or whatever. <laughs> it's, it definitely gets to me. Um, I know there's a there's a component library for Live View called Surface that will yeah. that replaces a lot of this uh, and allows you to use double curlies instead, which I think would be nice. a lot. More convenient, honestly.
1: Yeah, I, I get totally nostalgic uh, back in the day uh, doing PHP without any frameworks whatsoever. In some ways, PHP
0: has never been beaten for convenient web development.
1: Yeah, we were
0: the kings. Uh, and in some ways, uh, in some ways, it is still as bad as it ever was. No, I shouldn't say that. I haven't spent that much time with recent
1: PHPs. I Me mean neither. I think the last version I worked with was was five point fourteen or something like that. It's ancient.
0: I've dropped down in PHP seven once for some client work, uh, but it, most of the code base was uh, was sort of back towards PHP five. So it, yeah. It didn't really show off the new stuff, uh, aside from a lot of type annotations, which, which I mostly found annoying.
1: Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> type annotations is one of those your ma- mileage may vary. Yeah, but uh,
0: uh, getting into curly brackets and um, that lead, probably leads us into uh, front end web frameworks. Yeah. What have you tried there?
1: Uh, I've tried. Oh, I've done some some really strange uh, spelunking into the caves of frontend frameworks. I don't know if they live in caves. Whatever. Um, I tried uh, circle.js a long time ago. Never really understood how it works. It's some kind of idea with. Don't think I've ever heard. Oh, it's it's strange and really cool, uh, but I can't get it to work. Uh, it's probably <laughs> my fault. Um so, yeah, that's one. I think it's it's some kind of functional reactive programming thing that I never really understood. Uh it's very javascripty. Uh and then I built something own. Oh no, here I actually combined very small libraries to do a framework. <laughs> never say never. Um, So it was a combination of a virtual DOM and some small glue code and basically re-implement the Elm architecture with very small amounts of code in JavaScript. Uh, And it worked surprisingly well. Um, And when I uh, got uh, fed up with that one, I tried PureScript and Halogen. Um, PureScript is Haskell on the front end, but strict, and it compiles down to JavaScript. Mm. And it's it's a cool language. Um, I I think you need to have a quite a big code base on the front end for it to be a good investment to build something in PureScript. But it's uh, quite lovely. Um, And it's also very fun to work with just for the sake of it. Uh, And when I threw that away, uh, because there was some upgrade of something that broke something in a way that I uh, didn't understand, I settled on uh, mithril.js, which is a very small single page application library, but it's so small that I can just put it on every page I want a new single page application on. So uh, It's an
0: every single page application.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really nice library. I like it a lot. I,
0: I think I saw it when it came out on Hacker News. Looked at it and I'm like, oh, very neat. It's very small. Maybe this is something I'll look at. And then I didn't do much new front end stuff in half an age. Uh, and then React took over the world. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't properly tried React.
1: <laughs> Me neither.
0: I've done some labs with it, but not, nothing serious. Uh, but I have picked up Vue at some point and did some fairly fairly significant attempts uh, at building a thing with Vue. It wasn't Vue's fault that I didn't finish building it. So Vue was okay. Nice. I don't think i'm convinced about this whole <laughs> well from what i understand the the single page application wisdom of the day is that you do not want to use sort of ux and redux unless you really have to huh. and now i don't know where people put their state anymore uh, because i thought that was the golden rule to use those but apparently not maybe
1: on the server what maybe they put their state on the server
0: that's that's a novel idea but i don't
1: i'm just trolling <laughs> how,
0: how would that possibly work? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think React. So what I've heard about React from people who don't really like it much, or people that at least argue with people who like React too much, yeah, uh, is that it ends up being sort of like Flask because people will say like, no, React isn't that big. It's really quite quite a slim thing. Uh, you don't have to like a. Uh, the the router and this stuff, that's that's not React. That's that's extra. But oh. then you have the other side, which is like if you actually want to do anything, you should probably have React router, and you should probably have a state management library, and you should probably and you should probably and you should probably and then React <laughs> is probably not that small. Um yeah. which is sort of the Flask problem, but maybe I think React has and its component additions uh, pro- are probably better integrated than most of the Flask additions are.
1: I really hope um,
0: so. And I think Vue tackles that slightly differently, but mostly it seems like Vue and React are are largely equivalent, but slightly different flavors, very Coke and Pepsi.
1: Yeah. Uh, have you ever used Angular?
0: Uh, Angular Series 1 I have used <laughs>
1: cool because because i've heard
0: i've navigated some angular modern level uh, code bases which is typescript which was mostly confusing to me because i haven't done typescript yeah.
1: the, the syntax of typescript or the type annotations is quite alien until you get into them
0: yeah but i did angular 1 for a lo- long time uh,
1: how does angular 1 and view.js compare
0: well, uh, since the world moved on to focus on components, yeah. so components in Angular 1 was co- were called directives, and they were a pain in the back to actually do, but it was still the yeah. best tool you had in your toolbox for building any anything reusable in Angular. So Angular 1 did not age super well, and then like since support was dropped so quickly and they moved on and like broke everything sort of broke the path forward yeah it's, it's a historic footnote at this point uh, it, it worked fine it was it was workable
1: I'm kind of sorry for those who chose Angular 1 as their front-end technology
0: so th- there was uh, like a migration path I think Along the way into two, but it, like since they switched to TypeScript and they they really really changed changed a lot of things, it wasn't it was basically a rewrite to some extent. I, I we never attempted it, so I don't know how how painful it was.
1: Cool. Uh, I wonder how many code bases are still in Angular One. Oh, that's
0: probably plenty. Uh, yeah. We also had apps built in Ionic, uh, one the uh, like first series of Ionic, which was also Angular one. Wow,
1: wow, was that like C Sharp .net or something, or have I mixed things up?
0: No, I think you're mixing something up. So that was that was just uh, a nice UI layer combined with sort of Cordova, the phone gap stuff uh, for making hybrid web web view mobile applications
1: Ah,
0: so they provided they provided mobile style looks uh, on top of angular
1: wow
0: it it was pretty neat it was very productive
1: nice it's i because i heard i think i've heard it in the same context as i've heard uh, about another framework that was written in csharp.net where you could basically build your mobile apps and press the big green button And you got your Android and iPhone apps.
0: Yeah, you're probably thinking of Xamarin if you're thinking of C Sharp.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, no, those actually compile to something fairly native, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I've been mostly doing this Petal Stack stuff, which is Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine, and LiveView. Cool. And I did some writing on on that topic even before i had properly gotten into trying alpine or tailwind yeah so i've done some live view and i figured uh these like this combination makes sense because it sort of slots together in a nice way but i haven't tried tailwind but everyone sort of wild about tailwind um for css yeah and then alpine is built to fit That role between a sort of server-side rendering oriented. Um, So it was built by this guy, Caleb Portio, who built LiveWire, which is a port of the idea of live view. So delivering delivering updates over WebSockets for real-time real-time applications. Um, So server-side front-end real-time rendering i I don't know quite what to call it nice madness i believe it it showed up in rails as well as hotwire from from the Basecamp guys yeah
1: i believe uh, the hotwire parts are there's an app for django that does it too oh yeah i haven't tried it though Uh, it seems exciting
0: yeah so he built alpine to sort of fill in the blanks where sometimes you just want For example, if I have a delete button on something in my UI, I usually want the user to confirm that they're gonna delete it. I don't require a server round trip for the confirm.
1: (laughs) Are you sure?
0: (laughs) Are you sure? Uh, Do you need 200 milliseconds of thinking time? Uh, Usually it's less than that.
1: And then I can push the delete button more times. So I get many of those spinny things.
0: So, so Alpine is supposed to sort of cover that use case where okay. you just need a bit of interactivity or you need very fast interactivity, or you just want to verify some quick things to keep the user happy, um, which can be done entirely in JavaScript. Yep. And Alpine is, doesn't make for the nicest markup. Indeed. But it does hook straight into the markup, which, which is very relevant when you put it next to live view, which also hooks straight into the markup. When you're writing your template, it's like, okay, I want to f- click event on this thing. Then you just add Phoenix uh, PHX-click and what event you what you want to call the event. If you want to pass any extra data that isn't a form. Uh, you can add some Phoenix data annotations. Cool. And that will be sent to to the live view for processing. And then that will trigger re-rendering if you change anything. And uh, But basically when writing your live view or live component, you are looking at the markup only or mostly. Hmm. And if you want to add some Alpine interactivity, You also only work with the markup. And so Tailwind comes in and that's an approach to CSS, which I found super weird when I was trying it out. (laughs) (laughs) I really did not like my first experience with Tailwind. It felt super awkward because I know how to do CSS, but I do not know all the Tailwind classes by heart. Yeah. But what it turns out is it allows you to stay in your markup while deciding
1: what it should look like you don't have to switch to a css file and figure out where
0: yeah even view which offers uh, uh, single file components where you define sort of at the top you define your template and then you can dis- can define your logic and you can define your css in the same file in different sections yeah that's a cool cool idea cool idea bro but yeah it doesn't do the same thing as this. Because here you define a full components, interactivity, looks, behaviors in that component. And I've uh, I've been trying this for a, a thing I'm building right now, and it's felt super productive once I get over the hump of Tailwind being absolutely alien to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, isn't that one of the tools you need to print out a sheet sheet to be able to use properly. Like using Vim in the beginning.
0: I've mostly used. Um, I've mostly used their documentation. At at the start. I was like. Where's the getting started stuff. But there's sort of no real good progression. To it. Ah. Because it depends on what you're trying to build. <laughs> <laughs> what helped me most. Was actually buying their. Their uh, refactoring UI book. Which got me Into the the same headspace that they use for building the framework, I
1: guess. Ah, uh, cool. It's a reset button.
0: Yeah, sort of. It, it definitely got me excited about building UIs again, which was a while. Well, wow. It's been fun. Um, nice. But I find that stack very productive. It's a bit counterintuitive to me, and it didn't click until until I realized that I never had to leave the component to be building...
1: The component yeah that's so good
0: yeah and that felt that felt very productive and very powerful and it makes for yeah really really ugly markup
1: <laughs> but no context switches
0: yeah and i think that's that the general wisdom right now is to work at the like abstraction level of a component for ui design
1: yeah it's interesting i am um, um... I asked the front end team on uh, the place I'm working at the moment uh, what they thought about uh, Tailwind CSS. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> damn, did it get roasted. <laughs> uh, mostly because I think it's a very alien way to work, just like you said. Yeah. Uh, Before you get used to it and they are primarily working in styled components with a styled components library for I don't know if it's react specific or if it's uh, JavaScript But with I don't know I have no idea. It's a library for doing for putting your JavaScript CSS and markup in the same place
0: and I I will say, I don't love love the way it sort of works for... So with CSS, generally, you try to build nice abstractions and generalizations like, okay, we have these cards or like whenever we have a heading, it should look like this. And whenever we have this, it should look like this. Yeah. Uh, And the idea of making reusable classes... Uh, or reusable structures based on semantics. Uh, it's very appealing. It is. But I've never seen it work.
1: I have a theory why it doesn't work. Yeah? Uh, it's because of the cascading part of CSS. Because you can't say this is just for for these cards because everything you put in that class uh, cascades down to all the children until you override it, of course.
0: Yeah, that's certainly part of the complexity. Like if you, if you want to put a card in a card uh, and things start getting weirder.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yo dog, I heard you liked. Yeah.
0: And I think sort of maintaining any level of a CSS file or uh, as the as CSS file grows, maintaining it becomes harder. It becomes easier to just add a new clause yeah. than to reuse anything oh yes and there are whether you are going to do sort of mobile responsive breakpoints as something you put next to the class or you have a whole separate section or that is larger screen sizes mobile first or whatever
1: yeah this is the point where you go and fetch sass or less or a f- framework like that.
0: I'm not sure they solve that problem. They don't. So they make it easier uh, because you can reuse and you can move things around and you can sort of define colors in a single place. And but then it's also you also get the exact same issue with like oh I didn't know where we defined that color so I just used black. <laughs> <laughs> but but we have the okay.
1: Uh. and then the next guy goes i uh, no so just hash zero 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 yeah and and then then you can't grep for it and replace it
0: <laughs> and with this approach you lose all the nice semantics um yeah. so it's no longer a nice card you can implement some semantic parts and some reusable parts like tailwind has support for Uh, for composing their their special classes into more normal usage if you like yeah Uh, but that's not typically what what it's intended to do but rather like when i go to style the user menu thing everything i need to know about how we're styling the user menu thing is there um And there are there is sort of support for implementing some kinds of systems, such as a text sizing or uh, a color scheme, so that you have to. You can even remove all color options that are by default available in Tailwind, and just as far as I understand, you can enforce that no, we use this color scheme. If you want to add a new one, you have to change the config, ah. which will sort of be a good signal that, okay, I'm I'm adding to the system now. Cool. Yeah, so I, I think that's interesting, but I have no idea how you're going to st- sort of enforce, like, okay, we don't round our buttons that much. We round them less. We round medium or <laughs> we round large.
1: Yeah, Uh can you remove parts from um, Tailwind that you don't like?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if you can. I haven't looked at that. I know you can define your sort of color schemes and things.
1: Yeah, because I was thinking if, if, if we're too cool to have properly rounded buttons, we could just remove those classes and be done with it.
0: Yeah, I'm curious if that's, that's an option.
1: And well, that's maybe that's the wrong way to solve that problem. <laughs> yeah,
0: but it's interesting because it's the first time I've used what I'd call a CSS framework. I've definitely used things like Bootstrap before.
1: What's Bootstrap then?
0: Uh, so it was called Twitter Bootstrap once.
1: Yeah, but but if it isn't a CSS framework, what is well, it?
0: Well, it's a component library, I guess, or it's a UI framework, like web UI framework. <laughs> okay, fair uh, enough. it doesn't dictate css in that sense
1: okay uh, got it yeah
0: it sort of dictates what you put in your markup to get certain effects like yeah i want this button to be a button danger
1: <laughs> yeah and then you add lots of classes until you get the right one or how is it like you add button and then button danger and
0: yeah yeah something like that and a lot of wrapping divs and and stuff to get sort of this is a forum group and this is that and this is that
1: Exactly. And then it's one of the things that struck me. I never went for the bootstrap route because I I never went for a bootstrap because I thought it was too big. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm so stuck in like the web from 1998. So if a page becomes larger than say 100k uh, just text stuff. I don't count the images. I want to I just want to sit down and cry. Yeah. So I tried to use frameworks that uh, are small. Yeah. Um, so that's why I chose mithril.js instead of React. Another reason for that was a learning curve, but that's another story. Uh, and that's why I chose uh, purecss.io. I don't know what the name for it is. Pure CSS might be one of the worst names for a CSS framework or a component framework. It does the same thing that Bootstrap does, but in the 10th of the size or something like that. It might be even smaller. By yeah,
0: now. and it tries to do it all in CSS and no, none of the JavaScript yeah. aspects of Bootstrap, I imagine.
1: Exactly, you'll have to do the JavaScript stuff yourself. Uh, but I'm cool with that. So uh, I'm using pure CSS. Worst name. <laughs> Sorry, everyone who who loves the name. It's ambiguous. And then I get those, those class things with like pure button, pure button danger, and stuff like that. And just adding class on class on class on class until I get the look I want. And doesn't that remind you awfully a lot of Tailwind CSS? But with Tailwind CSS, it's Better names, I guess?
0: Mm, well, I would say no. Have you, have you done anything with Tailwind?
1: Very little. Okay. So
0: wh- while you're adding the button class or the pure button, which like <laughs> pure button danger sounds like a good band.
1: Um, yeah. So want to start a band? <laughs> um,
0: no. For, for Tailwind, that would be uh, maybe I add block rounded uh, or rounded medium rounded md and then i would be adding sort of uh, color definitions and uh, so maybe text white uh, bg black okay and hover uh, bg gray 600 (laughs) sort of yeah Uh, so i'm defining what it looks like i'm not defining what it is
1: good point
0: and hmm. I'm, so it feels counterintuitive to me. It's still, it's still sort of. I I want everything to be as semantic as possible because it it just pleases the developer in me. It's like, oh, I've just yep. defined this to be a button that looks like a button. I don't actually have to, I don't have to say that this is a green button because it will add the greenness if it's a button that is positive.
1: <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Uh, in actual usage i've found tailwind css to be uh i've been genuinely surprised uh, how delightful it has been to use nice um, i'm very very happy with with my we current weird stack in my current uh side project <laughs> where we're just like live view is a delight in itself uh, and so the, I think LiveView speaks to the power of a framework quite well uh, without bringing in too much of the nasty parts of frameworks in my book. Nice. In that like, you can't feasibly use LiveView without Phoenix because it is Phoenix LiveView. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's built on top of uh, a foundation and then there are some power features that have built been built on top of that sort of um, both phoenix channels and phoenix pub sub are fairly important if you want to do live view well and those are libraries that are built in built with for phoenix um, yeah and then you have live view that uh, sits on top of that and live view allows sort of real-time rendering on the server side and it's it's really a fairly unique selling point to a deeply integrated framework without being sort of too nastily coupled it's still so I don't have to use for example I don't have to use the data model for for I don't have to do anything Ecto related. I don't have to touch the database to be able to use Live View.
1: Ah, nice. So,
0: it's more. Um, it's more built on sort of the sound foundations of uh, of the Beam, coupled with a powerful web framework that speaks web really well, uh, and then some really opinionated design choices around sort of okay but we want to render a web application using uh minimal and sort of dumb javascript on the front end a web socket and the server decides everything um, yeah with escape patches for for all necessary cases but and that like i i'm set up uh i set up a application which spoke to telegram where i could just send a message to a bot and the message would appear on my live view in real time nice uh, i actually showed it showed it to my wife uh, and like okay play around with this you can send messages to this bot so try that and she sent a message and then she looked up and like i don't think it went it's like yeah it's right there <laughs> oh <laughs> because she never saw it arrive because she was looking at her phone when she pressed the button and then it it was there <laughs> too fast yeah it's it's a weirdly compelling stack i i should probably do some videos about using it because it's i think it's hard to convey without sounding like a weirdo
1: (laughs) you have failed like uh, you have failed at sounding like a weirdo so far so uh, oh that's
0: nice (laughs) yeah and (laughs) mostly i haven't Needed to use Alpine much, but I've actually introduced it into an entirely different project where all we needed was a very small JavaScript framework.
1: Ah, sounds like a good fit.
0: And it seems to be doing nicely there. Uh, I I think it's something I could could reach for every now and then for that use case.
1: Cool. It's have you? What if you have to choose? Would you choose Alpine rather than just vanilla JS?
0: Depends on what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so if I need to update a lot of DOM nodes, I really like it when a library does that for me.
1: Yeah, the DOM API isn't the best API I've seen. Yeah,
0: and I'm I'm very used to wrangling it, but I don't like to. Yeah, same here. And Alpine allows me to define sort of a basic tree data structure or like just the JavaScript object to keep the state uh, and define some functions on that one. And then I can hook them up to different parts of the of the markup and say, oh, show this, hide this, uh, only render this, if this. Uh, yeah, I think I'd, I'd use it for a lot of things. Cool. But you haven't dove into React and I haven't dove into React, I, I think. At some point I need to talk to someone who I know at least a few people who do a lot of react. Cool. And I really want to know <laughs> know how they really feel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are your innermost desires? I'm suspicious
0: yeah. of react. I I don't I haven't gotten the impression that it's that it's that good. <laughs> honestly (laughs) Uh, but it has such enormous adoption so it doesn't really matter if it's any good at this point that's true and i don't think it's without merit because like it was early on the component train and it has pushed a lot of those things forward so i think it's uh, it seems like it's definitely powerful and def- definitely useful and does a lot of things people want but yeah, I don't think it's yeah. my space it's it's not something I'm, I'm going to love uh, I would probably do fine with it considering I found Vue perfectly acceptable uh, if a little bit tricky sometimes
1: yeah it's I think the virtual dome parts are fascinating but they show up here and there anyway so uh, it's um, the coolest virtual DOM is of course the one implemented in what's the name of that one OM or something like that
0: don't know what that is
1: uh, it, it's in ClojureScript, okay. script and everything is in ClojureScript script is immutable because that's the one of the design philosophies behind Clojure and Clojure script inherited it mm. it would be Quite a prank to say that everything is clo- in Clojure is immutable and everything in Clojure script isn't, and then see everything starts to burn. But nonetheless, um, so when you walk through a tree like you do in this diffing algorithm, that's the base of all these virtual DOM implementations, or one of the really important parts. Um, you compare the current node with the changed node or the new node. So you have two copies of the trees. Yeah. And you compare them. If everything is immutable, you can compare pointers, which means that you can prune large parts of the tree without comparing them. And this makes everything much faster. Uh, But if you don't know if things are mutable, uh, maybe someone has changed something in the middle of an array somewhere deep down in the tree, and you need to traverse the whole tree. Uh, There are, of course, different tricks to make this faster, but that's the gist of it. Uh, So that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, and I think... Most modern uh, JavaScript frameworks have some of that. Like these functions should be pure uh, because they affect this sort of whenever you modify the state, that should be uh, a pure function with no, and it should behave according to this and that so that we can.
1: No side effects,
0: everything nice. Make some nice assumptions for (laughs) or diffing, yeah. or detecting changes.
1: And it's so hard to do that in JavaScript. I'm really impressed that people have managed to do that.
0: Yeah, I But I think, like in general with frameworks, I think it's very good to know how to operate mostly without a framework. Yeah. For languages where that makes sense. It's like, it, I wouldn't do much web development in python like back in web development and python without a web framework of some sort be it a flask or be it a django uh, while it's perfectly doable to make a few of your first applications in php or many of them uh, with just php because that's a web programming language at its very core
1: totally it's back in the day you didn't <laughs> if you didn't need security you could use PHP without any frameworks at all. Uh, but nowadays, maybe it's better. I don't yeah, know. I
0: think a lot of the defaults have been, become better. Um, but then there are things like... Um, for JavaScript, for example, uh, I think you can get quite far with vanilla JavaScript a lot of the time. But once you start, finding yourself implementing a framework if you have a framework you like maybe bring that in yeah Uh, and i think it's it's always about that sort of making those trade-offs
1: yeah trade-offs all the way down
0: trade-offs all the way down what a fun what a fun (laughs) gig
1: (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of frameworks uh orms what's your relation to orms no pun intended
0: that's an entirely different conversation and I think we'll I think we'll hold off on that